listening to the Echo Church Podcast. For more information about our church, please visit our website at echowashington.org. So we're going to look at three sections in chapter two, and we're going to, I'm going to try to break it down for you, and it's really interesting because what we see in there is we see someone trying to find fulfillment in three different ways. I'm going to try to keep this PG because I know we have some younger kids in the family. So I'll do my best, and not that I'm going to be vulgar, but I do think that Solomon addresses some issues in this book that as adults we have to wrestle with and I think pass on. Now, let me say passing this on. Do you ever get wisdom from your parents? Have you ever gotten wisdom from your parents? Can you think back? And can you think back of how many times you actually took their advice? Do you ever think back and wish you would have taken more of their advice because you decided you want to learn the hard way, you want to do it your way, right? Like, this is all of us. This is me. I tell my boys all the time, like, man, if I would have listened to grandpa a little more, my life would be a little different, right? And said, surprisingly, he actually knew what he was talking about. And I said, and so I'm trying to tell them, now, you need to listen to me because one day you'll wake up and be like, he was right about a few things. What I love about this is if this is, in fact, Solomon, he is sharing his life and he's saying, listen, I tried it all. We need to, we need to listen. Deuteronomy 6, this is uh, the Shema. This is what the Jews rallied around. This is what they taught their kids. This is the first word in this is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The first word that comes out of Deuteronomy that Moses had to say was, hear. He had to say, listen, Right? Like, it's important. So this morning, I'm praying that we all, together, we collectively listen to the wise words of the author of Ecclesiastes and his life, because it has something to teach us. So, let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and then I'm going to try to explain it to you, as I've been studying this, and then we'll move on to each section. So the first section, chapter 2, verse 1, this is the pursuit of pleasure, Okay? This is the p- pursuit of pleasure and trying to find meaning in this. Isn't, can you relate with that? Can you see how our world relates with this? The pursuit of pleasure. And I'm not just talking about um, sexual things. Pleasure exists in just about everything, right? Like p- some people find pleasure in cooking or eating food. And I, I, I am one of those. I love to eat food and it, it is a gift of God. Some people try to find pleasure in their work and how much success they have, their house they live in, or the cars they drive. Some people find success in their family, right? Like, look at my family. So we can see that there are so many areas in this world that pleasure exists in, not just one between a man and a woman or even other perversions. So this is about the pursuit of pleasure, trying to find fulfillment in it. So let's read what um, the preacher says. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity or futile. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. We'll talk about that in a minute. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees 
I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures, treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Questionable, right? And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expanded in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let's hit pause and talk about this because he brings up some situations, doesn't he? He brings up some issues here. Here you see a man who had 700 wives, 300 concubines, 1,000 women at his disposal. And what does he find at the end of his life? That even all of them could not fulfill the desires he had. He fulfilled every fantasy in his mind and it wasn't enough. Do we have ears to hear? Do we have ears to listen? I know this, that some of us think we will find meaning and fulfillment in getting married. If we can just find the one, right? Like our culture has bought into this myth. We have pursued and pushed this. And even in the Christian world, we think this. And I was told this a long time ago, and it, and it struck a chord in me, that yes, I am to desire my spouse. I am to enjoy her. And we will have joy together, and we will laugh together, we will do things together, we will have a family together. But my fulfillment is not in her or what she provides for me. Marriage isn't about you being happy. Ever heard that before? Like we want to be happy, and that certainly is like a benefit of being married, but it's not the goal of marriage. You want to know what the goal of marriage is? It's not to make you happy, it's to make you holy. Let me tell you something about be being holy. It is hard. It is, you are a square peg being pushed through a circle hole and your peg is like 10 times bigger than the hole. There is a refining of your life. There is a carving, a chipping away. And I found in my life that the Lord uses my wife quite a bit to do that. And in the moment, sometimes I'm not always thankful but I finally come around and be like, thank you, Lord. You, you are doing something in me. And it's not just my wife that God uses. I have six children that I'm learning from. I have a church, a family that I'm learning from. I have pastors that mentor me and coach me. I have the word of God that speaks to me. I have the Holy Spirit living in me, right? You do too. And so we buy into this myth that if we just have a marriage, we find the one, our life will be happy, will be better. And I'm telling you, it's a fight because Satan wants to kill and destroy you and marriage he hates. In fact, if you look at the stats, it used to be that the divorce rate in our country was 50% among non-Christians and then that Christians were a little bit lower. Do you know what? Not only have Christians you know, caught the, the stat, we've surpassed them. There's a couple reasons why. One is people aren't getting married anymore. They're cohabitating. But two is that no one's been taught how, what marriage is actually about. 
We take our vows, but we don't take them seriously. We take this covenant, a promise for the betterment of this other person, but without Christ in the center of our lives, it, it just goes to waste. Now, it just, it's not just in marriage, but Solomon is talking about it. So I want to encourage you that your marriage is about Christ in the center, and that is about him working in your life to make you more like him. It's a, it's a great grace he's given us. But here's Solomon, and he tries to, to, to take all the pleasure, and he had a thousand wives, right? And he still didn't find it. He goes on to this. He tried to do it with wine, and he says, I'm still, still guiding me with wisdom. Some question whether or not he, was, he actually kept his wisdom while he was getting hammered. I know lots of people that drink a lot. They're not usually wise. They're actually the opposite. They're foolish when they've had a little too much, right? You know what I'm saying? And we all know there's happy drunks and there's mean drunks, and I don't know, there's probably another third category. But I do know this, that when you have a too much wine, you lose something, you, you, your mind is, is, is not sound, and Solomon tried this. He says, I hold on to folly. Now listen to this. He also goes on to say, for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of life, like he drank wine because he wanted to test it out. This was the great experiment. Do you like to do experiments? Did you, like, I, I, did you like chemistry class? Do you remember chemistry class? The only fun thing I remember about chemistry class was learning what chemicals you're not supposed to put together. Because when you put them in the beaker and they react, they can explode. And so that was always fun. And so what I'm looking at, what we're looking at here is Solomon trying to, to do an experiment of life and trying to find the answers. And he's experiment, experimenting with pleasure, with wine. He goes on, he does it even further. He says this. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Like, okay, so the dude was in charge of building the temple that his father David said he was going to build. And God said, no, you're a man of war. There's blood in your hands. I'm not going to have my temple wholly set apart for me, built by someone that caused so much death. Okay? So it was Solomon's job to do this. And he built this temple, none like it before, seven to eight years to build this temple a long time. Do you know how long it took Solomon to build his palace? Nearly double. Some scholars think up to 14 and 15 years for Solomon to build his palace that he lives in. Not the temple, which represents God's presence, but his home. And then it says he built, what does it say? He built houses and planted for his wives. Okay, 700 wives. 700 homes. Like the dude knew how to build. He knew how to work. He goes on to say that he made himself gardens and planted vineyards and made parks. In fact, you can go over to Israel and you'll see um, uh, to the south side, I believe it is, there's these big divots and holes in the ground. These were, were filled with water so that they could take the water and irrigate all the forests and vineyards and plants that Solomon built. See, he was an experimenter. He was going to test this out. Okay, I'm going to look for it in pleasure and guess what? I'm not going to find it. I'm going to look for it in what I can build and what I can do with my hands. And he did it and still found no pleasure. But it gets even better. I mean, he bought slaves. He had great possessions of herds and flocks. He had all of it. Okay, so let's put it in today's terms. He would be a celebrity in our world. He would be uh, on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Remember this show? There used to be this show with this guy who spoke English. English accent, 
and they would go around, and they would just show you these houses of all how the rich and wealthy lived. Do you remember this? It's somewhat older for some of you. As a kid, I remember it. Okay, now let me go for the millennials in the room. My age, MTV Cribs, right? You got to go see the Bentleys and the Ferraris. Um, we could take it further. Let's, do the, let's, let's run on the, the televangelist circuit. Let's go see the houses of some of these men. I'm not going to call them anything else, who have the $3,000 Ferraris and buy their wives $2,000 Lamborghinis at the expense of the bride of Christ. Solomon, what? Private jets. Share the gospel. I'm not going to tangent on that. I'll get really angry. Solomon had it all. He had the palace. He had the vineyards, the forest. He built it all. And then guess what he did? Not only did he have it all, and he partied. He gathered for him silver and gold and treasure and kings. He says he got singers, both men and women, and many, many concubines to delight the sons of man. Like, this was the party of all parties. You can go to 1 Kings and read about how much food it's documented in 1 Kings, how much food he, he, he combined. Some people think up to 30,000 people, he was throwing epic parties. He was bringing in singers. He was bringing in the best comedian of the day, Jim Gaffigan. Come on in, entertain the crowd, right? And this is what he's doing. And he did all of this. And he's pursuing pleasure. And then he says this at the end of it. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had exp expended in doing it. And behold, all is vanity, striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Because the next day he still wakes up and he still feels like there's something missing in his life. That God is not the center and he's pursued all this and he knew it and he realized there's no fulfillment in all that we could do. Now here's the thing. God gave us pleasures in this world to enjoy. They're his gifts. Matt Chandler talks about this. He talks about like if you have that steak and you eat that steak. And I had a steak because we went out on Friday night for our anniversary which is not for another week and a half. And we saw the Avet brothers, and they were incredible. And we went out to Hawthorne, and I bought, I got a steak, and I ate half of it. Ate the other half the next day. Well, the kids helped me. It was delicious. It was good. And you know what? The whole world can know that steak is good. The difference is, is what Matt Chandler says, for the Christian, it doesn't stop at the steak. Like, if, if we don't believe that there's a God who made taste buds so intricate and detailed and gave us food that could taste like anything, like, we could have been in the matrix. Everything could have tasted the same, and, and we wouldn't have that, that gift of God, that grace of, of taste in our, in our lives. For the unbeliever, it stops at the steak. That's all they have. But for you and I, it rolls past the steak into giving glory to God and thanks to him. This is how you glorify God. This is the 1 Corinthians 10.31. That in your eating and your drinking, you do it all for the glory of God. Right? I'm a Coke guy. Pepsi's disgusting. And I'm probably going to pay for it later. And I love that taste, right? There's things that we get to enjoy. For a married couple, there is a relationship that you get to enjoy with them unlike anyone other. That is a gift of God. Now, here's the thing. We look at these things in the world and think, oh, that must have been a mistake. God didn't, he probably didn't intend that, Right? Like it, again, I'm going back to Matt Chandler because he did a marriage conference and this stood out. And he talked about how he sets up Adam and Eve in the garden. It's perfect. You, you work, you enjoy your spouse, you're not wearing any clothing and no one cares. Like it's perfect. And, and he said, what did he say to them? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. And he leaves them for a moment 
and he comes back and, they have, they, and, he, and he, they've messed up. But, but he says that, that, that what a man and wife do together in marriage wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't like God left for a minute, came back and saw Adam, says, Adam, get, get, get off of her. What are you doing to her? This was his plan. Like, he meant for it to be enjoyed, but he meant for it to be enjoyed in a marriage relationship. It was a gift. And so we celebrate that. I want my kids to see their dad kissing their mom. Not to be grotesque or too much PDA, but I want them to see this is a good expression that you will get to do one day with your spouse. And God's a, it's a gift of God to you. Right? Food. The pleasures that we exist in this world, I mean, they are gifts of God, but done in the right way, they glorify him, but if they end with the gift itself, it becomes idolatry. This is what Solomon is saying here. This is what we need to be listening to, this preacher telling us that you can pursue all of it, all your dreams and all your ideas, and at the end of the day, if Christ is not the sinner and the one getting the, getting the glory for it, you will not feel fulfilled. And this isn't just about being fulfilled. This is about finding contentment. This is about finding identity in Christ and the things that matter. Okay, so let's move on. So Solomon tried to find it in pleasure, and guess what? He didn't find it. Let's move on to verse 12. This is his pursuit of trying to be wise, of pursuing wisdom. This sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Like, is it a bad thing to, to, to pursue wisdom and be wise in this world? Here's what the preacher found out. Verse 12, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in the light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived from the same events that happened to, to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity, it's futility. For, if, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated, hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and the striving after the wind. Solomon considered the wisest man to ever walk on this earth, and he asked for wisdom, and God blessed him, not only with wisdom, but with riches and, and kingdoms. And what is he saying? He says, man, I tried, I tried the foolish life, and it wasn't really for me, and I tried to be as wise as I could, and I found wisdom. And you know what he found at the end of the day? Everybody dies. Everybody dies. And so your pursuit can even appear to be something good, but if your pursuit is not Jesus, you're still going to die, and you're going to die without this hope in Christ. Now, for the religious people, we have to look at this honestly, because if we think that we just do what the Bible says, that that would be living wisely. And I would say this, there is a lot of wisdom in the scriptures. I think if you weren't a Christian and you followed the scriptures, your life would be infinitely better. You would save yourself from lots of heartache. But the problem is when we elevate the rules, the law in the scripture to do, what, do for us what only Christ can do, which is bring fulfillment. The law points out that we need a savior. Then it also shows us there is a better way to life. There's a better way for you to live your life. And so we read it. And Solomon found out, man, the foolish and the wise, they all die. At the end of your life, it all comes down to Christ. So he pursued wisdom and he found that it wasn't doing it for him. And then we come down to the last section. 
This is the pursuit of work. Man, I think that could be timely in the culture we live in, right? My dad was a hard worker. Never missed a day of work. He was sick, he'd go in. If he was sick and he couldn't make it in, he'd call a vacation day in. I'm like, why? (laughs) What's wrong with you? Got up every day, went to work. Never heard him complain. Worked hard for his family, provided for his family. It's a way he showed his love for his family. And he still does it to this day. He's retired, but he still takes care of his family. My wife's family, hard workers. Get up, work hard. And I think in our society, that's a good virtue to have, but we have to be careful, and here's why. Let's read verse 18, and then verses 18 to 23, the pursuit of work. He says, I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also was vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. If that's not true in the world we live in and you see it, right? This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. This is the workaholic. This is I cannot get to the top of the mountain and I'm trying to climb it. And I'm doing it at whatever cost. My own health, my family, my friends, whatever, it, whatever I have to do to get to the top of this mountain of success. Guess what? You'll never reach the top, and when you think that you do, and your life is pulled away, what will you have left? Solomon had it all, and what did he say? He was, he was give, his heart was given up to despair, right? It's like, you ever have buyer's remorse? You ever get that uh, tax return in the mail? And you're like, cha-ching, rich for a day and you go out and you buy that thing you've been wanting all year and for like five seconds you feel really good and then you realize it's a thing and my happiness is ended this is the same picture Solomon's saying like he is despairing he worked hard and not only did he work hard and built a kingdom he knows that he can't take it with him. One day he has to give it off to his son, Rehoboam. And he has no idea if he will be a good steward of it. He can't control any of that, can he? That when he's gone, he has nothing left to control. And he said he could work all his life and attain all that he wanted to do, but at the end of the day, what is he left with? Despair. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 25. And he talks about the servant who had these storehouses. Well, there's two parables. Matthew 25 is a different one. Matthew 25, he talks about these talents in which the the master gave his servants. And he says, I'm going to give you 10, 5, and 1. And when I come back, I want to see a return on this. Go invest it wisely. And the one with 10 went and invested it. And he took what 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 this man had given him, and he, he doubled it. 
And the guy with five went out and he took it and he invested it and he doubled it. And the guy with one talent took it and hid it because he was scared of what, if, if he lost it, what the master would do to him. Can I just kind of share with you, like you have been given a deposit in Christ that is unique to you and God wants to uniquely use you and he's giving you, yeah, he's probably given you some talents and he's asked you to give it to his kingdom and to the glory of his people, the glory of our God. And one day he's going to come back and ask for the return of that which he gave us. And Solomon is trying to figure this out. Then he tells another parable, right? Jesus tells this other parable. Um, sorry. Too many parables. We'll just leave it at that. What Solomon is teaching us and learning is that you can have the drive and you can pursue all that you want and you may not even get there, but you will still fall asleep in the bed that you sleep in every night. You will look up at the ceiling every day and you will realize tomorrow waits another opportunity and in that opportunity, I'm gonna strive for the same things that didn't bring me fulfillment. What I love about the Apostle Paul, and if you read 2 Timothy, it's his last letter he wrote. And it's a beautiful letter. And he's writing to his protege, his mentor, this, uh, the, this young man he's raising up. And he's saying, even if um, my life is being poured out as a drink offering. It's a beautiful picture because what they would do is they would they have these drink offerings and they pour them out saying, this is all that I have, I'm giving it all to God. And his life is being poured out and he knows that his end is in sight. Oh, what's going on back there? And I think so often we are like Solomon that we want to try to grasp and hold on to all that we've acquired and worked for. For what? One day you can't control whether it would be taken from you. The parable I was thinking of was the parable of the man with the storehouses. Do you remember this? He had built these storehouses and accumulated all this grain and he filled them up. And Jesus says, you fool. You thought that by doing that you, you would find fulfillment but what if your life is accounted for you tonight and all that you worked for you leave to someone else i think this is a great reminder for us as followers of christ god has god has given you and equipped you uniquely and a lot of times we want to hold on to it and i'm saying the life of a believer is one that is a life that's poured out for the goodness of others and the glory of god Am I going to tell you exactly how that looks? No. We can have those conversations, but I know this. At the end of my life, I want to know, and I'm not going to do this fully, but I want to know that, that when the opportunity came, I, I gave all that I had to my wife, to my family, to my community, to this church. That all that I have, I, I did my best, and I gave it all. I don't want to hold back. I don't want to say, no, I'm going to keep this for me. And I think that's the call of the believer. I think Solomon's saying, listen, you, we find more fulfillment in doing the will of God, following Christ wholeheartedly, even if it means that we don't have the house, we don't have the car, we don't have the vacations, we don't have the stuff, but we have the king. He is what matters. I mean, I felt despair. Have you ever felt despaired like that? You felt like giving up and quitting? Like, I think we all feel this at moments. 
And I know I have. And the Lord just keeps me going. And I keep having to recenter my life around Christ. It's so easy to get off and make Christ just a part of our lives. He is, he's not a part. He is all of our life. He's all that we find our hope in, our meaning in, who we are as a people. That's who we are in him. And the moment we lose that, church becomes a thing we have to do. Bible study becomes a thing we have to do. Praying becomes a thing we have to do. These are joy that God has given us to experience together to remind us that he is the center. We come here to be reminded that if our ship's getting off course, we steer it back. It's a perspective shift. That's why I love what Hebrews says, that let us fix our eyes on the author and founder of our faith, Jesus. Because it doesn't mean that the waters still won't be raging around us in this world, but it means that our hope is fixed on the one that can calm the storm. And even, even if he doesn't, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I will worship my God even if my life is taken. And of course, God spared them. But what about the stories that even if the Lord takes my life and their life is taken, I will still worship the king. And so we get to the last part, and this is the best part. Verse 24, he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This is also vanity of striving after them. What is he saying here? I kind of mentioned this at the beginning. It appears that people that are not living for Christ have tons of enjoyment. But let me tell you, true enjoyment comes from knowing Jesus. There is a peace that surpasses all understanding. There is perspective that gives you hope in the midst of sufferings and trials and the storms of life. There is our eyes and our hearts fixed on something greater, knowing that the one who is greater lives in me and will see us through to that end. And one day, all things, all the questions we have, all the things that we've done in this world, God will make sense of it all, and we will be made whole and perfect and live in glory with him. And so we fight, and we gather to remind each other that we fight for what's right. We fight for Christ. He is the only answer to us. And I love that this is one of God's graces to us. That's why we can enjoy the things of this world without feeling and beating ourselves up with guilt because we know that Christ is the giver of those gifts, not to be abused, but to be enjoyed. It doesn't end at the gift. The gift is a, a reminder of the goodness and grace of God to us. I want to share with you this, and then we're going to end. I think we are longing and desiring this, and I'm reminded in John chapter 15, a beautiful chapter, Jesus is preaching to his disciples, and he's talking about this vine, and this beautiful picture of how we are in him, and he says this in verse 5, he says, listen, I am the vine. Jesus says, he is the one that gives life. There is no fruit outside of Christ. You plug into Christ, you're grafted into Christ, he produces fruit in you for those that are willing to, to do that. And if, 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 
This is the hard words of Jesus sometimes. But for the believers, he's grafted us into it. He's called us into it. We weren't a part, and he's made us a part, and he says, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Right? He is, that should give you freedom, knowing that he is the one doing the work. You, you can't outwork Jesus. He did it. You, you can't outperform Jesus. He did it. He fulfilled it all. So you don't have to, okay? He says, whoever, listen, this is so important, whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. What I see Solomon saying is people are trying to find fulfillment and enjoyment in all these things, and apart from God, apart from Christ, it's meaningless. But in Christ, it has purpose. And not just the fruit that is the good fruit, but I think so much more fruit comes from the sufferings of life. God's faithful to us in that. I'm going to end with this. Because this is our identity. Colossians 1, Colossians 3, verse 1, he says, If then, right? If then, you have been raised with Christ. This is past. Like, you've been raised with him. In Christ, you are with him. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will, will appear with him in glory. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're not your credit score, you're not your car you drive, you're not the debt that you've accumulated. You're not the clothes you wear. You're not the medals on the wall, the trophies in the case. You're not the, you're not the place that you work. Those do not define you. Christ has. And you're hidden with him. And when Christ sees you, or when God sees you, he sees Christ. It is a mind-blowing. That should keep you up at night. <laughs> That's what you should wrestle with. How is this even possible? And then you just... Rest and say, thank you, Lord, and you go to sleep. Rather than despairing about all that you could do in this world and not find fulfillment, we find fulfillment that we are in Christ apart from us only by the grace of God. That is a beautiful picture. That is what we need to walk away with this morning. All the pleasure, all the wisdom, all the work in this world will never bring you what only Christ intends to bring you. And it's in him. So this morning, um, let's pray. We're gonna, we're gonna sing, and I wanna encourage you, like, we don't have an altar, we don't have like this response time, but I think every week we have an opportunity, every single one of us, to respond. Right, like, yeah, obviously, if there, are, if there is someone that would come in these doors and not surrender to Christ, that needs to happen. But I think there's surrender in all of our lives for those that are in Christ that we are holding on to. Idolatries of our heart that are real and the things that we should pray about. But there could be deep-rooted sins that, that we are holding on to. There could be these identity issues. And I think for us, we have a chance to respond and be like, Lord, I am not finding my, my contentment in you. This is my prayer. Help me be content in who you are, not in who I think I am or who I want to be. Maybe it's, Lord, I need to trust you because I struggle with trust in, in this world. 
I'm not sure, but I think we have an opportunity together as a church to respond. So we're going to spend some time. We're going to uh, sing this song, and as we do this, you can sing along with us. You can pray. Um, you can cry out to him. You can confess to him. You can praise him because we should be praising him for what he's done for us in Christ. Let's pray, and then we'll continue to worship. God, thank you for this word. I thank you, Lord, that you still speak to us today. Lord, that the same things that Solomon pursued, the same things that, that everyone has been pursuing since the beginning of time, Lord, is a chasing after the wind. It will never be enough. It will never fully satisfy. We will always have buyer's regret and remorse outside of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for us this morning we would believe that, Jesus, you are enough. Help us to enjoy the gifts you've given us, but, Lord, not let it to stop there, but to thank you for it. May we be a people full of joy in whatever circumstance we have, knowing that we have joy in Christ. That is something that the world desperately needs to see. I thank you for what you've done in Christ, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.